Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 29 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The text used today is from the Bible, 2 Samuel chapters 6 through 9, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online, or if you'd rather listen, check it out at audible.com. Today we cover chapter 5, The Rise of Israel to Greatness. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Yesterday, as you noticed, the uh, Equal Rights Amendment was defeated in Utah. And I can see the propaganda going out now. Utah is not for equal rights for girls. And um, it was kind of interesting. When that first came out, I thought, well, why should there be any opposition to equal rights? It was a very simple amendment. And uh, I, I heard some people say they were opposed to it and a few things. and. I thought, well, maybe that'd be interesting to just kind of look into. I'd like to see what the opposition has to say. And I read a law review article from the Yale um, Law School on what this, what this would do to women's rights in America, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. Uh, it wipes out all of the protection that the states have set up for women in employment and uh, in the marriage relationship, um, responsibility of husbands to support them, all that's wiped out with this constitutional <laughs> amendment. Uh, everything that we've done over the years to protect the home and womanhood uh, was repealed by the thing. So it wasn't equal rights at all. It needed another name, I guess. But it was rushed through the Congress, and the, the Yale article was distributed to all the congressmen, but I know how it is back there. They just don't get time to read. And so um, 26 states rushed it through and they adopted it, but it hit Utah and there were enough people went up there to insist that the legislators at least read what this implied legally and stopped it cold. There are so many things like that. They come in so subtly and they look so innocent. So. Um, it's been kind of interesting to see these things. I know when paramutual betting went into California, um, the legislature turned it down three times in a row. Then after World War II, it was presented as a means of raising funds for education. Are you for education? Then vote for paramutual. People didn't even know what paramutual meant. Vote paramutual, vote paramutual, vote paramutual. Help education. And it just went through beautifully when no California legislature would have approved it. And so the people got paramutual betting and all the gangster element that went with it. So this is why we're told to try and keep track, try and study the issues both sides. Uh, the fact that, uh... No, it can be brought up again. Now, see, Idaho brought it up again. Uh, they approved it a year ago, and they've since been reading a little bit about it, uh, but they didn't quite have enough people ready, so they, they once again sustained it at the request of President Nixon. He specifically requested them not to reverse themselves, because he, he himself is personally for it. He doesn't see those dangers in it, but, and he's a fellow lawyer too, but uh, I thought the Yale Law Review article was right on. But it, it, really, uh, it really was a very serious threat to some very basic rights we've provided for women in order to protect their children and their homes. All that's wiped out. Uh, 
and as the proponents of it said, we don't want any special privileges. We want to have the same responsibility that the husband has to provide a home and a living for children. See, this throws the women right out into the street in competition with, with, for all the other jobs and throws the children into the daycare centers. This thing is really custom built. And see, the daycare centers come right along behind. And this is what uh, Plato said. This He said, we must get the, uh, destroy the influence of the parents, get the children away from their parents and raise them the way we know they ought to be raised. And we get the women away from the men. We'll wipe out marriage and the family relationship. And all the women will belong to all the men, all the men will belong to all the women. And nobody will know who the children belong to. That's Plato's Republic. Then along came uh, Marx and the Communist Manifesto, and he said, abolish the family because it's just a capitalist institution uh, where the husband wants to own the wife and the children, and the wife wants to own the husband. <clears throat> the parents want to own the children. It's just purely capitalistic. Got to get rid of it. And then Engels came along and wrote his book on the origin of family, religion, and the state. I think that's the full title. And he says the whole marriage relationship was invented by women uh, to gain a chokehold on their men and uh, keep them from wandering abroad. And he says it's a, it's, it's a very superficial type of social relationship. And we should get rid of it as soon as possible. And he said, after all, the family belongs to the state. The state must take the responsibility for raising the children, as Plato said. And so we're kind of getting a rerun here on Plato and Engels and, and Marx. But the Yale Law Review <clears throat> was the best thing that I had seen that really set it out in focus. And there was a tremendous um, uproar in the legislature yesterday over uh, private schools wanting to give the state control to license the schools and set up the standards that they must conform to. And this sounds so innocent until you discover that the, what they would do would be to prevent it from competing with the public schools. They would make it so, you'd have to have so much floor space and all this expensive equipment that taxes can afford and private people can't. And many of our private schools start in a basement or somebody's front room and uh, turn out to be great institutions. And the, the kids that are turned out are tremendous. BYU limped along uh, in attics and basements for half a century. So they, I, think of, I think they're able to beat that. But that sounds so innocent. Doesn't it sound good, you know, to say um, we want to prevent the fly-by-night fraud schools from coming in? That, doesn't that make sense? When you get down to the nitty-gritty, it was to cut out competition with the public schools. Now, the public schools really shouldn't be that sensitive because the presence of BYU in Utah did a great deal to stimulate the University of Utah. Tremendous amount of growth came to the University of Utah as a result of BYU flourishing back in, in the 50s. They're good for each other. And you see, we can pioneer lots of things in a private school that isn't allowed in a public school. So those are things to think about. So as I say, it was an exciting day yesterday. Peace, you know, private schools, women's equality, all in the headlines. And then there's David. There's a good man. Now I just barely reached last time where David had uh, decided that he would move the capital further north, only about 16 miles, but further uh, close enough to the other tribes so that he would give up 
the traditional Jewish capital of Hebron and move on up toward um, the other ten tribes. And so he put Jerusalem right against the tribe of Benjamin right here. And he needed Jebus or Jebusalem, now called Jerusalem, for his new capital. So he went up to take it. It had been captured by the Israelites under Joshua a long time before. Uh, but they never tried to hold it, and so the Jebusites had rebuilt it, and then they built this tremendous fortress that was so um, uh, unlikely to be conquered that the Jebus defied David, and they put their cripples and their blind and their lame up on top and said, that's all we need to defend against David. He'll never make it. Oh, that made David boil. The scripture is very plain. that He didn't like that a bit. So he said to his people, I will make the man who can get inside this castle the next commander of my troops. Well, the Giborim, or the royal guard of um, 600 men, they loved Joab, their leader. They didn't want him replaced. So they got behind him and, and uh, they saw that he did what was necessary. Now this fortress was located about right here on the edge and was very tall, and right underneath it was the, uh, um, the only stream that comes out of this mountain. And um, it flowed out and came down Kidron Valley here, which is quite deep. Now this, this people, the Jebusites, had settled on this pie-shaped peninsula called the hill, or Ophel, which moves out from this mountain. Today you don't know that's a mountain. It's all been cut off at the top, and it's made it been made into a temple square by Solomon and later by Herod, so you don't know that that's there. This has been filled in almost to here, about 90 feet of it's been filled in, and this is almost flat across here. So you don't realize what the terrain used to be. But this used to be very easy to defend. It's a thousand feet down here to the bottom of the, the valley of Hinnom. And uh, over here on this side it's very rough. And uh, all they had to do was to defend the mountainside. So it was a very good natural place to go. But not today. It's all filled in around here. You look at the ruins and the debris and you say, why would David ever build his city there? Well, it's all changed, as I mentioned to you in the book. Now, Gihon Spring, that comes out of here, which is one of the main rivers mentioned in the Garden of Eden, Euphrates being another, but as you can see, these are names to different rivers now. That's not the original Garden of Eden locale. This is Gihon. Now, it comes out of this mountain right here. It did used to flow down here. In 700 B.C., Hezekiah was being attacked by the Assyrians, so he dug Hezekiah's tunnel that went about a half a mile, the water came out of the pool of Siloam, right here, that you read about in the New Testament. And a year ago this summer, last summer, I had my five sons with me, and we decided to go down the tunnel. So we got a good guide, and, and he said, um, it's a nice smooth bottom, so you won't need any shoes or anything. And um, we went about 20 feet, and we, it was like walking on glass. And um, uh, this Arab boy who, was a who happened to be the guide, I looked at his feet afterwards. The skin on his feet was that thick. 
And of course, us tenderfeet, we were dancing around on the rocks, and he finally gave his shoes to me. And my boys uh, were Eagle Scouts, so they were a little tougher. But anyway, we went this half mile uh, down this tunnel. And about halfway down, the lights went out. The, our candles blew out. A draft came through, and the candles went out. The water's about up to here. Now, at this moment, it's up to here. <clears throat> but um, it was a safe depth at that time. Uh, but it just ice cold. It was really cold for half a mile. That was, that was a cold walk. But here you are holding your candle up high and feeling your way along these walls, and they, it curves. It's not a straight tunnel at all. It just curved back and forth. They just seem to follow the seams. And all of a sudden, whoosh, we're all in darkness. That was the darkest darkness I've ever been in my whole life. You're down here several hundred feet up that away, and several hundred feet that away, and several hundred feet that away. You're just in the bowels of the earth, and you felt like Jonah and the whale. But he was a smart boy. He'd had some matches up in a dry pocket, so he lighted us all up again. That was kind of interesting to go down the Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, that wasn't the situation in David's day. But the spring was there. And so you go down. It's about 30, uh, 20 to 30 feet below ground now. And you come down there. You get underneath, which would have gone right up into this castle. And you can see right where... Um, Joab was lifted. It's up quite high. And I think what they used to do in the old days, they would put people at different locations and then they would draw up these leather these uh, leather bags full of water or whatever they were using. Because you just couldn't carry a bucket of water there now. Uh, that the, the, It comes down and it goes like this. and You have to actually call on your back. And then uh, put your feet underneath and just push yourself up. It's uh, such a small aperture. If you had any kind of um, psychological uh, restrictions uh, when surrounded by solid walls, well, this wouldn't be any place to go. But gradually you can get up. You have to go a couple hundred feet up. Then you get up. And that's the way they used to get their water in those ancient times. And it was well known that there was a pass. And so Joab was able to get inside while they were all asleep. He opened up the gates. David took over. And that then became his, his capital. Now, today when you visit there, they'll take you over on Mount Zion. They call this Mount Zion. This is not Mount Zion. This is Mount Zion or Moriah. But when the Jews came here and the Arabs occupied all of this, they mentioned, they called this Mount Zion. It's called Mount Zion today. But that's the original Mount Zion right there. Now, they'll take you up here and they will tell you that there is David's tomb. And um, uh, it was built in the 14th century, actually. David's tomb originally was right here. And of course, it's all gone. It's all gone. Many of the places they'll show you uh, Rebecca's tomb, etc. These are all just memorial tombs. Uh, they're all 14th, 15th century creations just for tourists, you know. You've got to have a tomb or two here and there to keep people interested. Well, So after our local guides get through, we sit our people down and tell them uh, what the situation really is. Now, as soon as David had... Um, conquered Jebus or Jebusalem um, this was a definite threat to all the Philistines down here on the plains of um, Sharon because it's one thing to uh, have David as an ally when he's an enemy of Saul but when Saul is dead and this man has taken over all the tribes of Israel he represents the threat to all of the Amorites and the Philistines 
and so forth down here. So they decided they would take him. And they mobilized their armies down on the plains, so it wasn't difficult for David to learn by intelligence channels that they were coming. They had always attacked in one place in the past. They'd always come up Elah Valley and attacked the Jewish capital, which was Hebron. They wouldn't come up and attack their own uh, city of Jebus or Jebusalem. So they'd always come up Elah Valley. So down rushes David, and he gets his men ensconced in the... Um, uh, in the stronghold, which is um, an acropolis of rock with lots of caves in it. So they're all up there. They got their rocks, they got their stones, they got their bows and their arrows. And you can control the whole valley. So he was waiting for them. And a messenger comes, Star of David on it, no doubt, so they could get up there, and uh, got up and advises David, uh, hey, they came up Sorek Valley. Sorek Valley. Yeah, they're coming right up to attack Jebus or Jerusalem directly. That's this valley up here. So by the time David gets his men all out of the cave and finds this Philistine army, they are on the plain that's right down here, getting ready to make the direct assault uh, around through the mountain and coming down this way, which they always did. So David attacked from the rear and cut them off from their logistical supplies, which always scared the wits out of Philistines. If you want to really catch Philistines, you get them from the rear, and they're cut off so they can't go anywhere, scares the wits out of them. And so um, they panicked so badly, they even left their images. They left all their idols. So you can see what a, a consternation this attack created. So David burned all their idols, and they went back to uh, their business of building the walls around. So he's just in the process of building these big walls around the whole city and really fortifying it and he gets word they've come again. So this time he just waits for them and they move up on this plain here, the plain of the giants and um, then he says to the Lord through the prophet, now what should we do? And the Lord says, go around behind again. That was, that's a good strategy. You just go right around the behind and get in behind and then wait until what? There is a rushing in the mulberry, the poplars, <laughs> mulberry trees. Mulberries? Okay, everybody happy? Mulberry trees, okay. Not sycamore. Okay, mulberry. All right. To feed um, silkworms, you know. Got to have some mulberry trees. And so um, they waited for the rushing. We think it was the rushing of the wind, a, a, almost a, a temporary tornado or a whirlwind suddenly came. Probably some physical phenomenon that would have, have scared the Philistines anyway. So they attacked again. This time the Philistines were so scared, once again cut off from their retreat down Sorek Valley, that they go clear up to Gibeon, way down here, anywhere to get away from these Israelite fighters. Now this was such a total and complete victory that the word spread immediately. Here is a really great general and leader and king. And all through the Mediterranean basin the, the word spread. In Israel, the name is David. David, David. Now, David rose to power at a singularly fortunate period. How can the really great powers tolerate this little fellow taking over everything from the Euphrates River clear down to the east branch of the Nile River? What was the unusual set of circumstances that made this possible? What about the Hittites? They occupy all Asia Minor. They're descendants of Ham. They occupy the, all of Asia Minor, one of the great, powerful nations of the past. What's happened to them? 
Why did they sit by and let this happen? War with whom? Assyria. And it was so devastating that it wiped out the Hittites. They never did recover. They just lost their manpower, blood. Uh, that Hamitic blood was spread all over that territory. Did the Assyrians ever make a comeback? By 800, by 800, they were very powerful and moving out again against Israel, against everybody. And uh, Jonah was sent over to tell them to be good Indians or they were going to get the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. And it lasted 40 years. They were good Indians for 40 years. And then uh, they moved out again, principally against Egypt, then got themselves caught or conquered by Babylon. And when the Book of Mormon opens in 600 B.C., what's the great power in the earth? Babylon. Syrian is dead. But when we go on tour, that's, that's when you get this all straight in your mind. And you go down Becca Valley and you see, you just visualize everything, just the way it happened. Philistia, taken from Philistia, and um, they're, they're descendants of, of Ham. Now, you must keep in mind now that there were Philistines who were not Hamitic. There were Egyptians who were not Egyptians. Uh, there were Cretans who were not Crete. The, all these populations are homogenized by now. So we, we now are able to trace um, some of the Philistines from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. And some of them had come down from um, Anatolia or Asia Minor. So there's no doubt about it. it was, it's pretty well mixed up now. But if you came from that territory, just like Paul said, I am a Jew. He was not. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. But he called himself a Jew because he was from Judah. And that's the way it is with a lot of these people. Up to the Temple Square. Oh, yeah, we have the Star of David. We have had from the time the uh, original temples were built. <clears throat> we have, we've put the Star of David on them. Or that star. Uh, it's interesting that it would be that form. We also have the moon and the sun represented, but that's the form the star t it takes. That's right. We even have windows that way. That's right. There's some significance there, but I'll have to check back, unless somebody already knows. Well... It seems to me that it does, because that's what it is. It's an interlaced, it's the double interlaced triangle. Um, but uh, it's speculative in my mind at the moment. I can't pin down the facts. I've forgotten. I mean, why was he doing this? Oh, all of them? Oh, it was a way of life. Uh, the idea was to, um, the, the Lamanites did the same thing to the Nephites. If you could just get the Nephites, who work hard, you see, uh, under bondage, you can really live the life of Riley. This is social security in the old days. You get everybody else paying tribute to you. So if you're strong, you put other surrounding nations under tribute. Then you become a great power. It's a form of imperialism that was actually a way of life. Now, with David, it was a little different situation because what did he take with the conquest? What did he try to take with the conquest? He didn't do too good a job at it, but what was he supposed to take with the conquest? When people were conquered, what were they subject to besides tribute? The new law, the higher law. And the law that had been revealed to Moses, you see, was the law of equity and justice. You can take any of the ancient codes of law, and they copied the law of Moses in some places, but they were very arbitrary. Uh, they had different laws for different classes. 
And uh, Joshua was told originally to declare peace to a city, and it was willing to be under the new law and to give up heathen sacrifices and fertility worship and all these terrible things that they were to take them into their company and make them part of this, of this big new program for peace and prosperity. So that's what the Lord originally intended to do, but these Israelites did a rather poor job of lifting those nations, and as a result, they corrupted Israel. Oh, you mean the little city of David, Ophel? That's this little place right here. It's, it's, it's not big. As a matter of fact, uh, you go to any of the old-fashioned towns here in, in Utah, some of the famous towns, you know, we hear about, and finally they reach Provo. And you find out Provo was just uh, about three square blocks. That's all there was to Provo at that time. That's the way this was. This was called the City of David, but it actually was just a, um, a defensive area, walled in. It isn't big. Now, Temple Square alone is 32 acres now, on top of that mountain. That's 32 acres, all leveled and squared, cut right out of virgin rock and leveled. It's kind of exciting to be there. Now, as soon as the, as the reputation was established, why, you have a Phoenician up here in Lebanon, and uh, Lebanon, you see, just above Israel, it's up here, Tyre and Sidon, and, and Beirut, that's all Lebanon, or Phoenicia of ancient times. Now, who, was, who settled Carthage that became the great enemy of Rome, or Rome became its enemy? Who settled Carthage? All oh, my ancient historians, where are you? Who did? Yeah. Carthage was settled by the Phoenicians. Now, as the Phoenicians went sailing west and they would pick up tin in Spain and so forth, they needed a good, strong port over in that general direction. So they settled in northern Africa, um, opposite the toe of the boot of Italy. That became Carthage. And as you remember, the war between Hannibal and the, and the Romans and so forth, because the Romans got the idea that destroy Carthage, everything would be fine for them. They'd own the, the Mediterranean if they could just destroy Carthage. Carthage was Phoenicians. You remember that? Okay, it kind of helps you in your history to kind of get this, these people straight. All right, now, Hiram uh, was a Phoenician. And um, it's kind of interesting. He not only later helped Solomon build the temple, uh, but uh, when Solomon tried to pay him back by giving him some actual Jewish cities, uh, Hiram was disdainful. He said, I don't, don't want villages. I mean, I have no objectives uh, in, the, in territory. Uh, you want a loan, Solomon? So he sent, <laughs> he sent a whole bag of gold to Solomon. He thought this was just a nice gentleman way of saying I'm hard up, but like a little... Solomon was just trying to pay him back for all these favors. and It was real interesting. So Hiram says, oh, I guess he's just, it's just a subtle way to say I want a loan uh, or a gift. So he sent him a lot of gold. Solomon says, all right. Can't do anything about that. <clears throat> now, um, he offers to build David a lovely palace of what? of cedars of Lebanon, and when you see these trees, and there are not very many of them left anymore, you have to go way high up in the Lebanese mountains to see them, you can see why they were real treasures in ancient times. Um, they're impervious to um, woodworms and, and to weather pretty much, just almost like putting concrete uh, down, you see, for uh, building purposes. 
Now, actually, the buildings were not made of the cedars of Lebanon. What were they made of? Stone. And the cedars of Lebanon were used for the facing. That's what they were used for. So Hiram says, I'll not only send you the trees and everything, I'll also send you what? Masons. 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 See, that's where they come in. Masons and carpenters. This, was, uh, this king was generous. He really was. And uh, he'll be equally generous with David's son Solomon. Um, so they, he got this very nice building built. And as soon as it was finished, David said, Now it's not right for me to be in this lovely palace and God's house non-existent. There needs to be a place of worship for God. And so he said, I, I want to build a temple to God. And so um, it's, um, he decided that the best way to do that, to get the interest of the people up, was to bring what to Jerusalem? The what? Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, not the tabernacle, but the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, that's about 12 miles away at the home of a family, Abinadab, that's had it for a couple of generations, ever since it returned from the Philistines, who uh, captured it, but got a curse from, from having it in their places, so they had sent it back, and Abinadab's family had retained it ever since. So the proclamation went out, everybody get on the highways, and welcome back to our new capital, the Ark of the Covenant. So thousands of people lined this 12-mile highway, and it was kind of a, a mob spirit of joviality and excitement. And they had a nice new cart and two young heifers calling it. And, and this lovely Ark of the Covenant was probably on a pedestal or something in the cart. Now, it's only 40 inches long. It's, it's covered with gold inside and out. has two cherubim on the top. The judgment seat of God is in between the two cherubim. It's a lovely ornate thing, but it is not big. And so all the people are dancing and singing. I watch the Israelis. They just have a natural spirit of jubila jubilation. I mean, when they turn loose, they really have a gay time. Everybody's laughing at the tambourines going, and, they, and they're good dancers. And they're all singing different songs. It doesn't matter, you know. Everybody's singing. Some are dancing in a circle, and they break it up and form another circle. And that's how they get down the highway. They have a great time. And they did just fine until they got to Jerusalem. And they left the highway which came down around this way, to cut across over to Ophel. Well, that's limestone uh, mountain and very rough. And as they were going along, uh, the cart tipped. The ark was going to smash. I mean, it was going to fall off. It's very ornate. I mean, if, it's, if it falls, it'll be badly damaged. And Uzzah did exactly what I would have done. That's a terrible name for anybody. But... Uh, we have only one worse in the Bible. We'll get to that soon. Belonged to a beautiful girl. But Azza uh, did what I would have done. He reached out to steady the ark. You've heard about this? Don't try to steady the ark. Well, he reached out and touched it. Everybody's been touching it. They've been handling it, putting it around. and He just reaches out and touches it. And, well, that's all. <laughs> he woke up dead. And he's standing there, and there's his body, and there's the cart. And the priest stood over there, say, this way, Azza, this way. Yeah, he said, what happened? Well, you're in the spirit world now. How did I get here? Well, it was fast. You touched the ark. That's a fast way over. Well, they would have just merely explained to him, Heavenly Father wants to impress upon them that when they do anything as wrong as this is being done, 
and are as disrespectful, you weren't disrespectful, but they've all generally been disrespectful. He wants to impress them with a lesson, especially David. Well, David was impressed. He was absolutely frustrated. What do you do? What do you do with this, uh, God? I mean, what pleases God? I was trying to please God, and all of a sudden he strikes down a man for touching the ark. So he says, put it in there, in there. And uh, it went into the uh, house of, a, of a, a man from Gath, didn't it? A heathen. Um, so they left it there for about three months, and David watched it very closely to see what God was going to do to Edom uh, to Obed-Edom, this man from Gath that had it. What happened to him? Oh, he, pro he did well. It was just as though the windows of heaven were opened up on his house. And David said, you know, um, maybe it's not so dangerous. Maybe we ought to try it again. So this time he got the priest. And it's interesting what he said to the priest. Now he said, you didn't do it right last time. And probably David didn't know how to do it right either until he got the book out. And he says to the priest, because you did not do it properly at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us. For that we sought him not after the due order. So do it right, will you? So they did it just like the Bible says, only the sons of Kohath, um, the second son of whom? Of Levi. He also has another name. Do you remember that? what that was? Nadab. Abihu is his other name. Abihu. Abihu was killed, you remember, for putting false fire, uh, or putting uh, heathen fire up in the tabernacle? Well, anyway, it's his descendants that are the ones that are supposed to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So David said, all right, lift it up. They lifted it up. Come forth. They came forth. And you let them go, one, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. How do you feel? Fine. Put it down, we sacrifice, all is well. And so they had a sacrifice, and then they moved it on in. This time do they have uh, a singing uh, tambourine waving mob? No, they have choirs and orchestras. Uh, and they have dancing, but there's a lot of sobriety and sanctity now. This isn't a brawl anymore. And uh, did uh, David dance? Yes, and it's, a, it's the sacred dancing, it's full of... Uh, of, of appreciation and praying and singing and expression of um, body language, they say, you know, uh, uh, so that you're expressing yourself uh, physically as well as by voice. Now, in the process of doing that, he had on some priestly garments. What were they? The ephod, and underneath it, what was a long robe. Now, in order to put this on, what did he take off? all his royal robes. And that was very objectionable to whom? His aristocratic wife, Michal. Uh, nevertheless, he, this is what he did, and he welcomed the tabernacle the rest of the way in, all the way into, uh, at, I mean, he, the Ark of the Covenant was welcomed in, to the new tabernacle. What kind of a tabernacle was it? Just a tent, very temporary. Doesn't the old tabernacle that's 500 years old, that's up at where? That's still at Gibeon. Was it Nob? Now it's been moved to Gibeon by Saul, and it is still there. And so, um, having the Ark of the Covenant safely placed there, David now calls in the prophet and says, I have the Ark. I'm ready to build a beautiful building to put it in. I'm going to build a temple. What was the prophet's name? Nathan. He said, you're a good man. God will love you for this.
Oh, David felt so good. Build the temple now. The prophet goes home, and the Lord says, Nathan, yes? No temple. No temple? No. You don't want David to build it? No. He's willing? No. A reason? Yes. He is a man of war. I will have the temple built by one of his sons, a man of peace. Later. Tell him. So you've got Nathan coming back and said, David, uh, <coughs> we had a conversation this morning. <laughs> I was telling you how pleased the Lord was with your new proposed plans. I'm sorry to say uh, the Lord isn't pleased. And I've just been told you're not to build it. Why? Because you're a man of war. One of your sons will build it. But I have some good news for you, David. What was the good news? You will be the ancestor of the great Messiah. And, and uh, oh, this was thrilling. David went in before the Ark of the Covenant and he just says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house, my family, that thou hast brought me hitherto? Thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. Subtly, you see, saying, The fact that he should be my descendant. How wonderful. O Lord, there is none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee. He's just so grateful about it all. I say in your book over here on page um, page 108 in the second paragraph the last sentence says uh, we do not believe David had any portion of the Melchizedek priesthood will you mark that out one of the brethren has pointed out to me that uh, um, although he only exercised the ordinances that belong to the lower priesthood he did receive the vision on how to build the temple which would undoubtedly have been given only to a member of the higher priesthood. I think he's right entirely. It's an opinion on his part, but I agree with it. So, he had a prophet, but God showed him in vision what this temple should be like that his son would build. It was a lovely structure, twice the size of the uh, tabernacle, the tent, just twice, exactly twice the size, and uh, very attractive and beautiful, but tiny, very small. How many of you have been to this St. George Temple? Any to the Hawaiian Temple? Manti Temple? Oh, fine. Um, all those temples, um, well, pro no, not, not the Hawaiian Temple. Cardston and Hawaii are about the, about the size of this temple. St. George is bigger. And Salt Lake, of course, is much bigger. And Los Angeles is bigger. And then, of course, our Provo Temple is on a completely different design. So notice that he says that the temple was after the pattern which he was shown while in the Spirit. This is the way Joseph Smith got his revelations on the temple. First at Kirtland, then at Nauvoo. And I've read those uh, revelations, which you can also, because they're in the documentary history of the church. And the measurement for every lintel each window, the design, uh, you'd have to be an advanced architect to know uh, how these measurements should have been given. And when they were all put together, they had beautiful buildings. And the one big window at the Kirtland Temple, the Rockefellers have been trying to buy for years. That's a beautiful window that's behind 
the Melchizedek priesthood um, altars. Beautiful window. All that was given by Revelation. The temple that's to be built in Jerusalem now was also given to Ezekiel by Revelation, all the exact measurements, and the Jews have already figured out how they should build their temple and have made a model of it. They just need to find a place now to put it. But this is the way God reveals how to build temples. One last question. No, no, David wrote it as he saw it. Yes, Ezekiel did the same thing. The angel would say, now I'll measure it, Now you write it down. So Ezekiel, write it down. Okay. All right.